the we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pound. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And good evening, or good morning, good afternoon, wherever you happen to be. This is A Different Perspective, and I am Kevin Randall. I will be joined here momentarily by Don Schmidt, and I think you all know pretty much who he is. Before I get to Don, I just wanted to uh, remind everyone that for those of you who are interested in, I guess, my Vietnam service, I've got a blog called uh, www.vietnamgroundzero.blogspot.com, which I say is the relatively true story of my Vietnam service. And I say relatively true stories because I'm working on memories that are now 50 years old, so uh, we all know how that works. So maybe some of this thing isn't quite correct uh, in the chronology or some of the minor details. It's based on my memories and some things that I wrote uh, a number of years ago and my actual letters uh, back home during that time. I was gonna publish some of those letters, but reading them now, it's kind of embarrassing. So I probably won't do much in the way of that. And for those who are interested, I do have another blog at www.thesciencefictionsite.blogspot.com and it's all linked through a, a different perspective. Uh, for those of you who'd like to read some of the science fiction stories that I've written or some of my thoughts on science fiction and that sort of thing in the in the past. And I, I do this because I've been accused of being nothing but a fiction writer, so I thought I might as well uh, throw up the science fiction stuff as well so everybody can take a look at that. Uh, as I said, I'm going to be joined with, by Don Schmidt, uh, who is a native of Wisconsin. He's been involved in UFO research forever and a week like I have. I think between the two of us, we are probably the two leading experts now on the Roswell UFO crash. I put us slightly ahead of Tom Carey, but not, not that far ahead because he's been involved with us in one way or another, or with Don one way or another for um, quite a long time. And so he's well, well, um, no, uh, well known in the field and also quite knowledgeable about the Roswell case. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Roswell when we begin here, and we'll get off into other aspects of ufology. Don Schmidt, welcome to A Different Perspective. Hey, Kevin. Great to be back. Always with you. Hey, you mentioned uh, your letters from Vietnam. I recall you telling me that you were sending material, sending writing uh, articles for your local Cedar Rapids newspaper when you were in Iraq. Yes. Uh, are you putting any of that? Are you posting any of that online? I'm not at the time, but here, and here's the reason why. Um, and it's kind of funny. Uh, Bob Cornett and I wrote a series of books called Vietnam Ground Zero yes. back in the mid-1980s about a fictional special forces team. Right. And they're now being published in English. And, and I say that somewhat facetiously because a, a um, English publisher has bought the rights to the books, or actually I got the rights to the books and allow them to publish them, got the rights back. And uh, 10 of them have been, been published, you know, and they're online now as Vietnam Ground Zero. And I thought of a way of kind of promoting the books, plus telling some of my background in Vietnam. I, would, uh, I created the Vietnam Ground Zero site as, I guess, sort of a marketing ploy, I suppose. Um, and, and it's a way of uh, just kind of describing that. The Iraqi stuff, um, I thought about putting those online as well, but I thought given everything I'm doing else I'm doing right now, that maybe it's best to wait on starting another blog where I have to uh, put stuff, get, get stuff together and find pictures and do all of that sort of thing to do a nice blog. But uh, well, that's the story there. Great stuff. And, uh, you know, it should be made available at some point because uh, it's directly from the source. 
And uh, we too often rely on the media to uh, tell us history, teach us history. And um, we need to you know, have people in the field actually experiencing the situation. And, uh, and in this case, who better than you? That's what I thought. But like I said, I've got some stuff that I'd done in the late, uh, I guess, early 70s, late 70s uh, for magazines and things that had some of this material in it. And I've got the letters and I've got some other stuff. So I thought I'll just put together that. And then there's some things that, that, that have happened that I, I mean, that happened that I remember what, uh, quite well, such as when I blew up a helicopter on a landmine. So Yes, yes. And in uh, your case, better than Al Gore just taking pictures, right? Well, he was there for five months when the normal tour was, of course, a year. So you have to wonder about that as well. Mm -hmm, correct. But that's a whole other argument. Anyway, let's move on to ufology. You were involved with the History's Greatest Mysteries Roswell story, as was I. Yes, yes. And uh, I was uh, at times not only very critical, but uh, quite upset by some of the material they included and some of the uh, non-witnesses who should not have been involved. And uh, the, the, the way they, well, the mistakes that were made throughout. Um, you, mean, you mean like not being able to pronounce uh, Mac Brazel's name? <laughs> well, that, and then they, 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 they had an older picture of me that was not me. Uh, it was a former radio DJ from Roswell called Sonny Steele who worked at, as I recall, K-Moo Radio in Roswell. And he had hair halfway down his neck. And I, I, I'm sorry, what would make you believe that was me 30 years ago? Sorry. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's talk about the Not Jesse Marcel's Journal. Fine. And I, I say it that way is because, as we all now know, we've, we heard about the journal for two or three years. Correct. Um, and I was getting little bits and pieces of information from various people that I would post uh, to the blog when I knew something of importance. And we got to the point where um, last February, a year ago, when I was in Fort Worth on the Ramey memo, which we'll get to, mm -hmm. uh, they were telling me more about the, about the um, journal, but I wasn't allowed to say anything about it because of non-disclosure. Right. Um, I was surprised that they didn't mention that uh, Jesse Marcel hadn't written the journal until we get late into the program. But I mean, I, they didn't mention it to me at all. And still let me think that it was created by Jesse Marcel. What was your reaction when they said uh, that the forensic uh, handwriting expert said Jesse Marcel didn't write the journal? That was a surprise uh, as to why would anyone keep the journal written by someone else? Unless it just happened to be part of his personal effects, that it was it just happened to be there and he never discarded it, or if there was some relevance. Uh, so there are some questions there, and especially if they would ever be able to determine whose handwriting you know this this belongs to. I, I think it's interesting that um, the, the little journal book that it's in, I saw lots of those back in the 60s in the Army. They used to give, give them out to you to keep notes in and things like that. They've gone to a much nicer book now that's hardback, actually, a nice hardback book which you can write in. But I was just thinking that somebody had co collected this book and uh, written down things in this journal in the office, and when Jesse Marcel vacated the office, he just threw it in with all his stuff and just never sorted through it at any time to get rid of it. I mean, that certainly could be the case. And uh, I was I was pleased that they were able to establish that it was circa 1947. I mean, it's dated through that particular time period, both before and after the actual occurrence. I know I've been explaining to uh, people that want us to take into account that the whole COVID situation uh, you know, weighed heavily as far as on the post-production, that there were things that they had intended to do as far as additional testing and tracking down additional uh, uh, writing samples that uh, they were unable to do. Otherwise, uh, we may have, you know, more answers at, the, at, at this juncture. But um, I think I, for what we do know, 
it uh, it was intentionally spread out over those three episodes just to you know build suspense and uh, you know draw as far as we draw people re- to return back to uh, watching the program. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, you could see that as well. But I was I was a little bit disturbed uh, with the I you know, I was interested in the idea there might be a code in there and it was printed as opposed to written and that was kind of interesting. But uh, and it seems that the same hand wrote both the uh, the the script uh, and the, the and the block, the block printing. Yeah, uh, but uh, I don't think there's any code hidden in there. I don't know why somebody would switch from one type of writing to another. I went through some of my back notebooks and things like that when we were in the field um, back in the early '90s. Uh, you know, I always had a notebook and was always writing something down and looked at it. And a lot of it's script, but once in a while it's in block printing, and I don't know what moved me to do it that way or another. So I'm not sure there's any significance to it. And I think they pretty well destroyed the significance of the journal at this point by saying Jesse Marcel didn't write it, and we don't know who did. And that's right. That's right. And if there was any reason to believe that, say, it was a Patrick Saunders, well, they interviewed the, the Saunders uh, family. They could have acquired, I'm sure, additional writing samples I mean, I'm sure there were letters and uh, notebooks and all types of things that he left behind. I don't know if it was because of COVID or, again, they were just um, preventing as far as uh, a further, an additional level of investigation. Well, you know where they got the sample of Saunders' handwriting, don't you? Well, from... From me. From you, right, right, from the very book. Yeah, yeah, And, and, and they were there with the children... The right. Sanders, Saunders children, and they could have said, "You got any letters from your dad?" And that was a disappointment that they didn't. Um, one of the things, for example, like when they included Frank Kaufman, um, yes. I, was, I was just aghast. Yes, like, yes, uh, yes. I, I immediately, you know, made phone calls and I sent emails, and then when I was informed, and we we certainly remember the whole Peter Jennings. Uh, Fiasco. time special. And then to find out that one of the writers, specifically on the Rosmo segment, also was the writer for the History Channel in this production. And that when it was expressed to him that we were not uh, happy about Kaufman, his re- response was, Kaufman's no different than any of their other witnesses. And it's like, uh, excuse me? I mean, if that was your your entire attitude through this whole production, that explains how they were pretty loose as far as with the historic facts and how they were making the mistakes they did. Because to them, accuracy, you know, to, at least in my impression, was accuracy was not not tantamount. They uh, they could could have cared less about it. I was I was a little bit disturbed about that too. And one of the other things that happened to me after the episode aired with the uh, revelation that it was not Jesse Marcel's journal, I had done a blog post, and it was up for a matter of hours before they started calling me and emailing me and texting me. You have to take it down. You have to take it down. And I said why? And uh, finally, the one of the I guess the director called me, Carl. And he says, you have to take it down. And we chatted about that. And I said, I didn't reveal anything. I didn't, I didn't violate the non-disclosure. There's nothing there. And he says, well, we're you know, talking about uh, next season. And I'm thinking, next season? I don't care about that. But I, finally, I did take it down. Um, I told him I would take it down. I wasn't happy about it. And I didn't like the threat either that uh, you better take it down or else type thing because of non-disclosure. That's when they become lawyers. Uh... <laughs> So even next season, I haven't heard anything about next season. I take it you haven't heard anything no. about next season. So uh, they they left a lot of doors open, but they, as far as the journal goes, um, no. Uh, I don't know how much I don't know how much further they could even approach this. Well, the other thing is we talked. We're going to talk about the Ramey memo in a minute, and and there's information about that as well because we did. Yes. That's what I was involved with specifically was the Ramey memo. But we're going to have to take a break here for the obvious reasons. And I just uh, wanted to thank everybody who's purchased a copy of the Best of Project Blue Book because it's been up and down on the Amazon bestseller lists uh, all the time. And if you enjoyed it, please rate it and write a review, and it helps to spread the word. Be sure to take a look at Encountering the Desert about Sephora and Roswell in the 21st Century. We will be back right after this with Don Schmidt, so please stick around.
the we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pound. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Theoretically, I am here with Don Schmidt. Actually, we're practicing social distancing in this time of COVID. If I can say that anymore, I'm not sure we can. Very social distancing, yeah. Yeah, uh, we're not in the same state. Not in the same state, yeah. So anyway, uh, we were talking about the Jesse Marcel Journal when we went away, and I think we've pretty well decided that there's really nothing relevant there at all. And there, too, as we were talking uh, earlier, as far as, like, uh, utilizing AI, artificial intelligence, even for analyzing the Ramey memo, that I'm surprised that there are still linguists, cryptologists that, uh, you know, do it the old-fashioned way as opposed to letting a computer itself discern whether there are any, uh, you know, unusual techniques or qualities or if there's any code as far as, uh, you know, that can be discerned from the verbiage within, you know, certain text. Uh, again, I think it was just intended for the drama of the, of the episode and uh, the fill in the fact that, again, with COVID, that uh, they had uh, six hours to fill with probably three hours of uh, original material they had filmed. Well, since you mentioned the Ramey memo, let's go there. Okay, why don't we go there? Last um, last year, I got a call from the, from, from the people, the, the producers, wanted me to go to Fort Worth, the special collections where the Ramey memo negative is being held. Correct. And my response was, you need to talk to David Rudiak. He's the guy you want to talk to. And apparently David Rudiak was unavailable. And I'm not sure exactly why. I think it has to do with um, health issues, which I don't think I'm saying anything out of school here, but I, I think it had more to do with health issues than anything else. So I was, I was the <laughs> default setting, I suppose. I had sent David a couple of emails and saying, you know, I'll try to present your case as best I can. Right. Uh, um, you know, what, what would you like me to bring up? And I never heard back from him. So I went down to Fort Worth and met with him down there. They did the same thing I had done with uh, Josh Gates when we'd done this a couple of years earlier. They had to go down to the vault to see where the negatives were stored. They wanted to know if I wanted to go down there. I said, no, I've seen it. I don't need to see it any see it again. I've got photographs of it. I've seen yeah, where did, the picture, the negative is. Yes, yes. Um, they brought brought in a guy named Gene Cooper, who, right. who operates the, what is it, the, the Sigma Macro Company. And what he, they analyze negatives for one thing, one of the things they do. And he brought in this piece of equipment that was just incredible. It took just literally hundreds of photographs of the negative, the whole negative, right. down to the molecular level. I mean, you're not going to get a better scan. I don't know how you could do anything more, but they, he spent uh, literally 24 hours just photographing the negative. And then we projected it up on screens and looked at it and tried to discern what it said and talked about fonts and uh, all of that sort of thing. And in your and, case, too, as far as with your military background, that even specific uh, uh, the, 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 uh, well, the cadence, even the choice of the words used as far as within a military telex, that type of thing, that that's where you could have certainly applied, you know, you know, certain words just wouldn't fit. They wouldn't have used, you know, the zeitgeist of the time, for example, would not have applied. So, well, I think the I think the point is, um, I don't I don't know I no longer think that it's a memo that the military wrote. I think when J. Bon Johnson, he's the photographer from the Fort Worth Star Telegram, and I'm saying this so that the audience knows who he is. Right. Who who was in Ramey's office? He took the picture with Ramey holding holding the document, and he said originally he'd brought the document in with him. And he'd given it to the general to look at. That's why the general had it in his hand. And then he said later he, he took it off the general's desk and handed it to him so he'd have something in his hand. But I think that from everything that I've seen now and everything that's gone on, and I know David Rudiak's going to be mad at me again for this, I think J. Bon Johnson bought it in, which makes it basically irrelevant. I mean, it's the tele telex that says, you know, they found a flying disc, blah, blah, blah. But so what? It's not the military. It's the newspaper's and the reporters communicating with one another about it. Uh, but the point is, um, we looked at the critical phrase, which is viewing, I'm sorry, victims of the wreck. Victims of the wreck, correct. 
And I know David Rudiak went through and he counted the letters and he said, you know, there's only so many words that begin with V that uh, have this many letters in it and, and so on. When we were with Josh Gates, the expert they brought in suggested it said viewing of the wreck, which changes the meaning dramatically. Totally, totally, yes. Which I think is important to understand. And I can see it both ways when you look at what we have in the way of scans published all around the Internet. I can see it both ways. I can see viewing of the wreck. I can see victims of the wreck. When uh, Gene got done with his scan, we saw a different word there. And I think at this point, we're, we're dealing with uh, the degradation of, a, of the negative itself after so many years. We're, right. we're dealing with the debris that it's picked up and the handling, even though they've been very careful about the handling of it. And all of that, I think that tends to obscure exactly what the message is. I think there's no doubt it relates to the Roswell case. I am not convinced it's a military document. And, and, I, and I say, and I know there were teletypes at the time that didn't do this, but the military teletypes mostly didn't use punctuation. It would no, say PD no. for period or CMA for comma. Right. Um, I don't know what they would have said for semicolon. And there's <laughs> punctuation in this document. For example, the use of the word disk. And uh, in both cases, they're in quotations. Yes, yes, precisely. It's just more of an uh, editorial uh, comment as far as on the use of that word. In other words, there was some latitude, whether or, or the fact that it was new in the vernacular at the time. And so, you know, we can debate and argue why they would have put that word in quotation marks. But nonetheless, there's your punctuation, which would not be in a, a, a typical telex. And I told David a long time ago, and I've said this to others as well, I was I was surprised at the lack of jargon that they were able to see in the messages they tried to decipher it. And I and I said, I've been into meetings where the jargon was flying so far and fast that um, it was almost like a foreign language and you get lost in the jargon. What did you mean by that? Mm -hmm. uh, and I've seen I've seen uh military memos and, and documents as well that's loaded with jargon, military jargon that's completely understandable to the people who are in the military, but may be lost on the civilian end of it. And I've seen the civilians mistranslate or misunderstand some of the military jargon. So, yeah, it's very problematic. But I think the point is they did a very good job of getting a new scan of the negative, and I don't think they're ever going to be able to get a better scan than this. And Gene said as we were getting ready to leave, uh, Fort Worth, that they would have to apply, as you mentioned earlier, the AI, artificial intelligence right. to it, as a way of kind of uh, taking the pixels apart and reassembling them in a way that makes makes sense and would be, uh, I guess, the best, best way you could do that. Um, but he was going to go back to California and uh, run more tests, uh, do more work on it, because we had a limited time in Fort Worth. But um, I, I communicated with him just a couple of days ago because I anticipated this coming up because uh, <laughs> it's my show and I knew what I was going to ask. Right. But uh, I, uh, he has done additional work on it, but he hasn't been able to decipher anything more. We're at we're at a dead end with the radio okay. at this point. It's what you want to believe you can see in the various interpretations. And that's where where it is right now. And I'm not sure we're ever going to get anything more out of it. When you mentioned when you talk about the A.I. and you uh may recall our, our our good departed friend Jack Rodden as a professional photographer it was something that he even suggested um, 15 years ago that what we need to do is have a computer read the memo no interpretation in other words that we would create a program with the sole purpose of reading military documents military telexes and the idea that uh, just feed all the data into the computer and then whatever it determines would be the final word. Uh, we haven't done that as of yet. Uh, that's something that Gene could still steer this towards. I think, I think he's steering it in that direction, but I don't think the technology exists right now for them to do it that's the way right. it needs it to be done. Or, but, but that may be the final word. Uh, yeah. Just like we, we, we allow computer radar now to uh, eliminate any interpretation of, uh, you know, radar, uh, you know, signals, that type of thing. Uh, we're, we're, 
when I had approached Ray Downing at Studio Macbeth in New York, and because they did the Shroud of Turin, and they ran into the exact same problem as we did with the Ramey Memo, in that because they were dealing with a fabric that the noise factor was as high as it was. And in our case, it's the photographic grain. That is, you intensify, you yes. amplify the, the image, you also increase the noise factor. Yes. They created a program that essentially shaved away each layer of the texture of the fabric until all that was left was the image on the cloth, so to speak. And the thought being, if they could do it with the shroud, that maybe we could do it with the memo. Well, that's one of the things that, that Gene did, was he yeah. showed us how he could build it up and, and take it down, so shaving, shaving off le levels of it, but it did not reveal anything new. We were able to see that in Fort Worth. Right, right, uh, right. It just didn't help, and it's the way the, the paper was folded or twisted, the, the angle the photograph was made, the distance from the camera, yeah, the type of camera, the technology that was available in 1947, all that comes into play and makes it a much harder, I guess, thing to do to get to the, the bottom of it, so to speak. Everything's distorted. And as yeah. a result, to undistort it uh, is, again, it's all manipulated. And as a result, um, we've come full circle, as you know, because you and I, when we first you know, became aware that the negatives still existed. And then when we, we, we saw the, the, uh, the piece of paper that Ramey is holding, and, and my God, you know, when we blow this up, we're right on the cusp, maybe we can read this. And at the time, we had Dr. Uh, uh, Richard Haynes, Dick Haynes, uh, who was consulting with NASA at the time, and he was working at JPL. He did some computer enhancement, and he was able to bring out the word balloon. But that was it at the time. But you and I had quickly concluded that it was nothing more than a press release, that it was something that the press already had in hand, which then would verify uh, Johnson's account that he just had a copy, you know, of the very press release they received at the Star-Telegram. Well, we have, to, we have to point out, or I have to point out here, Johnson changed his story significantly over the years. Yeah. And, and for those of you who are unaware of it, when I first interviewed him, I got one set of facts, and I mm -hmm. think it's the clean story as he remembered it. But then others got involved and wanted to make him into their star witness so that Johnson uh, began to change his story. For example, when I first talked to him, he said that when he got to General Ramey's office, Ramey said, it's all a weather balloon. There's nothing to it. It's it's that. And in the worst Star-Telegram story that he wrote that night, and he told me, I think on the tape, it's seven times. And the story I wrote that night, the last paragraph says when General Remy said all it was was a weather balloon. Well, he could and, he described how he could smell the stench yes. of the rubber in the hallway before he and then and, and then and then once he uh, learned that he became a, a famous person with this, as the the Roswell photographer, he changed his tale radically and right. said, Well, General Ramey never told me that. It's in the story. Course, it's what you course. told me. And, and so then it was, I manipulated the tapes, and I edited the tapes, and I did this, his own words coming back to haunt him. But every time somebody accused me of that, and I sent them copies of the tapes, they, that was the last I heard from them, because they realized that uh, Johnson was not a credible source after you get back my initial interviews with him. So I mean, he took the picture, he took a number of yes. the pictures, he took, and he took specifically the, 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 two, uh, the four shots, two of Ramey alone, and then the, the two of Ramey and his uh, chief staff, the Bowes. And he but, took the two. He obviously took the two of of um, Marcel as well because they all looked pretty much the same. So he later denied he took the the ones of Marcel. I'm going to stop us here because we're going to have to take a break, uh, which we do frequently, apparently, uh, to let you know that there are good things going on. In fact, there are some other fine programs on the, about the paranormal on the Exxon Broadcast Network. So check the website out. Go down the list of programming, and I'm sure you're going to find something else to listen to this being your favorite one of course i know this because it has to be uh, i'll have some additional information at my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and for those of you interested in the vietnam war take a look at www.vietnamgroundzero all one word all lowercase blog.blogspot.com you are listening to a different perspective on the exome broadcast network and we will be back right after this so please stick around
Believe it or not, I am back with Don Schmidt. We are talking ufology, but we've been hung up on Roswell simply because I think um, we know the most about this. Don, what's the what's the latest book that you've done uh, that people might want to take a look at? Oh, I'm trying to think. <laughs> There's been so many. We just we just finished a book that uh, Philip Mantle is going to be publishing out of England called "Touched by Roswell." So it's uh, a non-research account of just all the celebrity, all the politician, all the high-ranking military that we have uh, encountered, been involved with, and been touched by, you know, their curiosity of the case, their involvement, their being part of a festival at Roswell. Uh, people, some of the, the people that have written forwards, some of the books, for example, and, and voice, you know, their opinions on the 1947 incident. So uh, I had done a talk entitled Touched by Roswell a couple of years ago at festival, and it went over extremely well. So it, it, it right away kind of put, placed things in motion as to uh, a lot of these anecdotes, a lot of these, these people that uh, I'm sure most have no idea have ever expressed any interest in, in the subject, let, uh, let alone, you know, you know Roswell. And... So it was a fun book, fun book to put together. Well, what strikes me here is I'm often accused of creating a cottage industry with Roswell books, but you've taken it beyond cottage industry. You, you've you now made it a full-blown vocation here. And, and, and luckily, I'm involved <laughs> in local politics here in town. In fact, this evening, uh, I'm attending a fundraiser for a, a senatorial candidate here in Wisconsin. And I'm, I'm president of a, a professional choral group. And so I'm well grounded in that. I don't work, I don't do UFOs 24-7. If I dabble in it a couple hours a day, that's about, and I remember our good friend Jerry Clark often saying that after every time he would attend a conference, he would be so burned out that he didn't want to even think about it for a week. I can't, I, I don't feel I've ever been to that, you know, that burned out, but it's good to step away. And well, I will say I will say that Philip Mandel does a very nice book, and he's the one that did my uh, my book, The uh, Best of Project Blue Book, and it's uh, a a very nice looking book, and it has a lot of information in it. I saw that, and I saw the one that he did with Kelvin Parker. Yes, I, I especially like the fact that you recall when we we, we joke about our, our our literary agent years ago, Sharon Jarvis, and that after she inherited very well, that she was no longer hungry. That was the, the term that I used, that you want someone that is hungry and is going to be out there plugging away because um, they have their heart and soul in it as well. And that's and I, I believe that's the case with, with, with Philip. Yes, he's he's he does a very nice job and he's out there looking for stuff all the time. And promotes, I a, he heavily promotes. And I think that's yes. Awesome. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to do the, the Blue Book with him is because he heavily promotes, and I think that's a good thing to do. So when we uh, went away, we had, uh, I think we kind of finished with the Ramey Memo. I think it's your opinion, and it's kind of my opinion as well, that the Ramey Memo is really not going to lead us anywhere. It's, it's, it, we're done with it. It's, it's all interpretation, and that's why I will continue pushing, though, that there would be an artificial an AI final determination and then abide by that. Whatever, you know, they create a program that can read it without yes. human involvement. And I, I believe that should be the final word. Well, let's move on to one other part of the Roswell case. I really didn't mean to string it out quite this long, but that's the missing nurse Glenn Dennis tale. Yes. And they brought Glenn Dennis into the program on the History Channel as well. I was just as uh, disappointed with that as I was Frank Kaufman. You and me both. Kaufman maybe a little bit more, but but Glenn Dennis certainly didn't deserve any any promotion as well. Um, I am on the opinion that Glenn Dennis made up the missing nurse completely and totally. Uh, Tom said that uh, in one of the books you guys had done, you revealed the name of the nurse. You'd found her. She had worked in a clinic in Roswell. Very low. She actually, there was uh, a couple of nurses, one by the name of Brown, who uh, worked at the Ballard Funeral Home. 
And then the other would have been Mary Lowe, who worked at St. Mary's Hospital in Roswell. Well, the problem I have with the civilians being involved, there's no need for them. In, in other words, the military had their own nurses. They didn't need to bring somebody out from outside in to take a look at the bodies or anything like that. And uh, once we move beyond the military nurses at the base, and I know that Vic Goyebeck had looked at the nurses that worked in hospitals in the Roswell area, and he looked at, the I think, the nuns who had some medical training and all of these sorts of things as well. Also at St. Mary's, yes. Yeah. So that, that it pretty well... Uh, he had pretty well established that there was no missing nurse that was involved in this at all, and that Glenn Dennis had made up the name and made up the nurse story. We, we were able to verify the, um, the idea that they, when the nurse had been killed in a crash. They killed five nurses. We were unable to verify. That happened, right. We were unable to verify the original name he gave us. Um, and then when we said we can't find a nurse by that name, she doesn't exist. There never was a nurse. He said, well, I made it up. Uh, you guys wanted a name, so I gave you a name. I told you at the time it wasn't the right name. No, you didn't tell me that at all. Um, so I think that pretty, great, to me, that pretty well killed his credibility. And we spent a great deal of time and effort and money trying to, you know, establish the existence of a nurse by that name, even a person by that name, even a nun. I remember when we went up to Minneapolis, St. Paul, pretty much, you know, this time of year, brutally cold and uh, checking out as far as uh, one of the convents up there. And then as far as there was a retirement convent, because Glenn had also told us that uh, it was his rec uh, recollection that she was a native of the Minneapolis St. Paul area had consist uh, considered going into the sisterhood. And uh, we were looking, we were just going through class pictures and anything by that name. And the hardest thing, and Glenn, throwing a monkey wrench in the process by suggesting, well, you know, she may have, you know, gone on to become a nun once again. And well, and we know that sisters, you know, more times than not, they take on different names. They don't even use their, their actual, their surnames. And uh, it was all intended to, uh, you know, distract us, divert us and waste a lot of time looking for somebody who never existed. Well, the thing is, uh, I remember talking to Glenn one day, and I've mentioned this before, and he was berating me for not finding his nurse. Why didn't can't you find your nurse? I gave you the name. I gave you the name. Why can't you find your nurse? Proving again that he didn't tell us it wasn't the right name. And I said to him, well, you know, I just called a guy named Robert Slusher. And oh. Don, you actually got me the phone number. Yes. And I called him and I talked to him. And yeah, he had been in the Army Air Forces in World War II. Right. Uh, but he'd been a major guy we're looking at for was a listed man. I said, and I said, you know, here's a guy named Robert Slusher. It's not the right guy. And Glenn says to me, oh, I know that guy. He lives over in uh, Alamogordo. Alamogordo. Right. And I called that guy up and it was the right guy. Um, so that was kind of an interesting, I guess, serendipitous conversation because we got to a witness we wanted. But it also demonstrated once again that Glenn didn't tell us, well, I'll give you a name, but it's not the right name, that he was keeping the Naomi self name alive. Uh, at that time. So, I, I mean, that really put me off on Glenn Dennis, all the stuff we couldn't verify. Um, I know Glenn, not, I, I think Tom still has some uh, belief that he might be sharing some kind of truth with us. Well, we've had a number of uh, witnesses, including a former police chief of Roswell, who did describe, and another witness who was a deceased attorney, who did describe that Glenn informed them at that very time about the phone calls and the request for the, the child-sized caskets, where I totally, you know, sh you know uh, shut the door on, on Glenn as any trip to the hospital, base hospital, and uh, any encounter with a red-haired captain and a black sergeant, that type of thing, uh, and then the, the, the meeting with the nurse. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, never happened. See, Glenn, to me, is always, he's, he's a classic example of these storytellers who just have no concept of investigation. They don't think you're going to actually, you know, look into their story, that you're going to attempt to verify and corroborate with additional witnesses. And um, it just, I think it really caught him by surprise. Like, you guys are actually looking into this? 
And it was like, well, yes, that's what we do. And then uh, he's got to backtrack, and then he's he's throwing you know other you know monkey wrenches into the process, just trying to prevent us from uh, exposing him for uh, essentially making up the whole the whole tale. Well, here's a here's a question that I've often had: Why did he need child-sized caskets? What he needed was a hemetrically sealable casket. And what would happen if you'd put two of the bodies in one of them or you put two of the small bodies in regular-sized caskets? You didn't need child-sized caskets. You just needed a, a casket that be, could, could be hemetrically sealed. And just imagine any of the personnel on the base, the moment they would have seen anything suggesting you know, an incident involving children, it would have raised even more alarm, more flags of concern. So... Uh I mean, they, they would have had cough. They wouldn't have had cough, but they would have had uh, coffin-sized boxes on the base at that time. Well, I think the I think the really important point here is that people understand that we looked in depth at the stories we were being told. We were the ones that exposed, like Frank Kaufman. It wasn't um, it wasn't the skeptics no, no, who no. didn't believe him. Because of the story you told, because they know there's no such thing as alien visitation. Stan Friedman didn't believe him just because, and I think you would agree, because he wasn't one of Stan's witnesses. Precisely. Precisely. Missed our work because it wasn't his. Yeah, but, precisely. Uh, but, but the thing we is, were the ones who exposed it, we we were the ones who kept going back and going back, and and raising new questions and asking for new documentation because. Again, because the story's so big, we never gave up on these people. And once we got once we got the information, I know that you, uh, Mark Chesney, and Mark Rodiger actually got the, uh, the 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 critical paper, which was his separation paper from the army, which we compared yes. to the one he'd showed us, which was completely and totally bogus. Um, didn't want to reveal that immediately because of of. We wanted. The, I, I had immediately insisted that we, we would wait until his. His widow Juanita would pass away. Yes, and that was the point I was going to make that the, the compassion, the compassion of doing that. Right. Um, I. Uh, I think that's how professionals, that's how gentlemen, you know, should be. I mean, I, I have no doubt a lot of people would have been so quick to rush to judgment and present all this, but why should we destroy her lasting impression of her own husband? And and and. She passed away, I think, what, 18 months or right, so year after half he later, did. Year and a half later, right. And, and immediately we did the story. Uh, Mark Rodiger and I put together the stories for the International UFO Reporter right. outlining all of this and, and the additional information that Mark had done contacting one of the guys from the base at the time and said, no, I never wrote that document and things like that. So we, we were able to... Um, I guess destroy the Frank Hoffman part of the tale that it was. Yeah, because in one of the documents, even his separation documents, and the one officer who was involved, we could see that his signature was even forged on a number of papers, and and then finding the you know the, the the typewriter from that particular time period, and that he had all he had a a, a box of parchment paper onion skin paper from that time period, that type of thing. And to find all those documents that he had hidden in a satchel behind the desk. And we were, I was pulling out desk drawers and I'm reaching up inside and then wait a minute and there it is. And all of the original documents. So uh, yeah, we, we did, our, the, the two marks were kind of distracting his, his wife Juanita I was kind of ransacking, you know, the office and going through everything. But I guess the biggest question would be, why did Frank, why didn't he destroy all that while he still had time? Why well, did he gonna, leave it? Unless we're going to get back to that because there's another aspect of this that becomes very important. And I didn't mean to draw this whole thing out into Roswell, but unfortunately, we've kind of done that. Um, so we'll we'll do that. Once again, it's uh, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com for more information. You are listening to A Different Perspective. We'll be back, so please stick around.
I am here with Don Schmidt high atop the Chrysler building in beautiful downtown Kiwanti. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about here. Um, when we went away, we were talking about uh, Frank Hoffman, and I think it impacts on Walter Hott. As you remember, Don, we got the name Frank Hoffman from Walter Hott. And I'm sure you remember us standing outside what was the SunWest Bank building across the street from the Greyhound Terminal, which is no, yes. not there anymore. Yes. Um, yeah. On Main Street, North Main Street in Roswell, New Mexico. And we asked Walter Hott about Frank Kaufman. And Walter said, everything he tells you is golden. You can believe it. Mm -hmm. What does that say about Walter Hott's credibility? Well, at the time, as you recall, we were pressing Walter for everybody and anybody he could recommend. And I think, and, and Frank Kaufman certainly was not one of the first, and he wasn't the last, but nonetheless, in looking back, Frank was, you know, he was head of the Chamber of Commerce. Walter, in his own, with his art gallery, and even as an insurance salesman after he had left the service, Staying, staying in Roswell, native Chicago, you know, he stays in Roswell. But nonetheless, he and, and his wife, they became uh, good friends to the Kaufmans, both uh, Frank and Juanita. But not as far as my impression in every discussion I had with either Frank, Juanita, or uh, Wal Walter's uh, family, including his, his, his wife, Pete, it had nothing to do with the base, nothing to do as far as it, because mainly for the fact, as it turns out, Frank was not an officer. There would have been little, if any, fraternizing as far as between the two on the base. And as a result... In, in 1947, there was a great schism between the officer ranks and the, and the enlisted ranks. Right, right. And especially, so, especially the lower grade. I think when you get into the, the the upper grades of the NCOs and you get into the upper grades of the officers, they kind of respected one another quite a bit for the jobs they did. But you had to be very careful in your socialization at the time because there was like an officers' club, an NCO club, an enlisted man's club. And to now, there's only just one big club. And that's exactly you know what I you know I garnered as far as from looking into why, you know, the, the Hots even associated with the Kaufmans after the fact. And my, my total impression is that it had nothing to do with the Roswell Army Airfield, had nothing to do with a shared experience or knowledge of what had transpired in July of 47, that it was strictly Chamber of Commerce. It was strictly business, and then which grew into more of a social uh, as far as association, as far as they became friends in that regard. Um, you know, Waller's story that he overheard, he overhears Kaufman speaking in the bar at one of the reunions talking about 47, that type of thing. Uh, Waller would explain that that was the first time that he had any idea that Kaufman had any such knowledge. I think he was throwing us a bone, Kevin. I think that he knew the he knew Frank very well aside from the base and he was just you know if he would he, in telling us that Kaufman's word was gold maybe he actually believed that concerning business matters he was a friend but the moment as you also recall Frank started speaking publicly about first of all his secondhand involvement the whole McKinsey and Osborne, that type of thing, involvement, as we wrote about him in our first book. And then in the second book, where he becomes our star witness, you will recall that that Walter publicly disavowed Frank's involvement, that he was very critical. In fact, if anything, they their friendship soured tremendously because of that. So if he felt that Frank's word was gold prior to that he certainly didn't feel and believe that after frank started talking about roswell i think that uh, i think it really kind of reflects poorly on on walter hot simply because he knew what we were looking for and he knew what was going on and if he was involved as deeply as he said he was he would have known that kaufman wasn't involved at all 
And so uh, I, I just um, I, I just kind of suggested that um, there was what hanky panky going on in Roswell to get this interest going in the Roswell case, and it flourished into quite the industry for for Roswell, New Mexico. For all the trips that I I, I made, even after you and I were no longer working together and making it a point. I spent, I probably spent more time with Walter and Frank than anyone for all those years. In fact, when Walter was dying, they had me fly down and visit with him one last time while he was in hospice and uh, saying goodbye to him. And I made the four trips to still, you know, make an attempt to get Frank Kaufman to confess, to tell him, to tell us the truth, you know, before, you know, that he would run out of time. And I worked with Walter's daughter, Julie, at that time, because Frank wanted to meet with Walter one last time. He wanted to, you know, at least have, you know, that one last opportunity between the two of them. Now, this is at a time that Walter and Frank had not spoken for over a dozen years. And again, because nothing that Frank said about Walter or vice versa, it was because Walter felt that Frank was lying, was totally fabricating his involvement at Roswell. And as Julie described that when they met, and, and Walter finally did it because I asked him to do it as a personal favor. Do it for a dying man. Frank wants to at least, you know, meet with you one last time. And they met. Julie would take him to the Kaufman residence. Julie waited in the family room as the two of them sat in the living room. And she overheard them. They were talking about 1947. And Walter barely said a word, according to Julie. And then on the return home, Julie would ask him, well, did you make up? And, and Walter would say, well, we said our goodbyes, but he's still lying. So I, I'm not going to pass judgment on someone who at least concluded, even before we did, that Frank was lying. Well, I think the thing, point is, I don't think he needed to conclude it. I think he knew flat off that Walter was, or, I'm sorry, Frank was lying simply because uh, of a lot of things that that uh, Frank had said. But I, I just think it it, it, it harms Walter Hott's reputation, uh, because we got to Frank Kaufman because of Walter Hott, and he told us that Frank was was golden. And I, I would, I, I met with Walter as you know a number of times when you weren't there, and talked to him about these things, and he never never gave me a hint that uh, Frank wasn't uh, to be trusted in what he was having to say, and I thought that harmed Walter's reputation. And so, I mean, I can I can understand when you look at the totality of the Roswell case now and the number of witnesses that have blown up, mm -hmm. whether it's Frank Kaufman or Glenn Dennis or Gerald Anderson, for that matter. Um, Though we both would say that he was never a witness and he certainly was never one of our witnesses. Well, no, I mean, did Gerald, forget Gerald Anderson, but I mean, just another witness who was injected himself into the Roswell case in some aspect of it who wasn't being honest about what he had to say. There was Rick Tungate, and I got him from Walter as well. Yes, yes. And and Tungate um, told me, I don't think he knew you could do this. He told me he worked in uh, Korea with this guy who was a general, and he'd been a squadron commander or a group commander in in, uh, in during the Korean War. I found an order of battle that listed every commanding officer for Air Force units in Korea, and the guy's name wasn't there. So uh, I don't think they, they knew that that kind of information existed in the pre-internet days. This, I was in the library going through books and just stumbled on that. So uh, it, and, who just, did, and who did Tungate's story tend to corroborate? But Frank Kaufman. Yes, and, but I think that was unintentional. I, don't, I, don't, I think that was just a coincidence. Um, Though you will, you will recall that the first time that Frank and I was in the car with him when he drove me north on uh, 285 to the uh, McKnight Ranch. And we were in the east, eastern part of the China draw that time. So it was the, the Hub Corn site. And I returned back 
and we met at the hotel, and we were to meet with Tungate that afternoon. And yes. by the time we got back, we had a message from Frank that he had not gone, uh, we had not gone far enough west, that it wasn't the McKnight Ranch, it was, it was the Corn Ranch. So it was, yes. to me, my impression was that Tungate had called Frank, told him it was further west, and that's what Frank then had to agree with. I don't know if they even knew one another, but you could be right on that. Well, I would suggest that the chamber of, head of the Chamber of Commerce knew most everybody who was a business person in town at that time. Well, I would be true. Listen, Don, we're going to have to cut it off right now because we're running out of time. Well, it's great to reminisce, and it's great to even debate and, you know, kind of wrestle between even the old information. Because Absolutely. Of, but I think we didn't, we didn't touch on a lot of topics, and we wanted to get into more into ufology. Um, so you'll be back next week, and we won't talk about Roswell at all. No, promise. <laughs> we'll, talk about, we'll talk about electromagnetic effects. We'll talk about abductions. We'll talk about where research is going today. Um, we can get into a lot of different topics. A lot of UFO news happening, and so we'll touch on all of it. Yes, yes. Um, and your latest book, once again, is? Oh, I have to look. <laughs> Give us the name of any book. <laughs> the Wild Don Secret. The Ultimate Cold Case. There you go. And I think that describes the nurses and all of that stuff as well. Anyway, Don, thanks so much for taking time today. We will meet again next week. We will social distance as required by law, I think. And do that thing, and we'll talk about something other than Roswell. Thank you so much, Don. Appreciate your time. Kevin, always great. Take Good care. talking to you too, sir. As I said, we'll be back next week with Don, and we'll talk about ufology and that sort of thing. And I think the the other thing uh, I talked to Avi Abraham um, Abraham Loeb. He's the scientist that talked about the alien artifact floating through the solar system, and we interviewed him on this program. And he mentioned something about um, UFO research without the people involved, just basic instrument observations. And um, I'll have much more on this later on, but I think the important point is there is a way of doing it where we can have four chains of evidence if we can set it up right. And the MADAR system, which is this magnetic detector that will, uh, it, it, it detects Magnetic anomalies suggesting there's something in the area. And if we can get uh, people around each of these nodes to agree to it, you know, you'll call somebody and say, this it's gone off, it's in this direction. If we can get photographs of it, we've got a second chain of evidence. The eyewitness testimony would be a third chain of evidence. And maybe some radar trackings for a fourth chain of evidence. So we'd have a case built on four chains of evidence. It would be very hard to refute. And as I say, I'm going to do more about this uh, later on. So take... Take a look at the blog in upcoming weeks, and you'll see this at uh, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And in the uh, coming weeks, we'll be talking about other aspects of the UFO phenomenon. Uh, we're going to look deeper into triangular UFOs with the expert on that. And I've got some other interesting guests coming up in the future for us. So uh, be aware of that. Once again, I just want to uh, direct more people to the Vietnam Ground Zero blog, simply because I think the stories are interesting well, they're interesting to me because I was I was there, uh, and I think you'll get an idea of what it was like in the Vietnam War as opposed to what it was like in World War II or what it was like in um, in Iraq. And I can compare, of course, Iraq and uh, Vietnam and come up with some conclusions. So take a look at the uh, www.vietnamgroundzero.blogspot.com and. Take a look at Encounter in the Desert for Socorro, Roswell in the 21st Century for Roswell, and the Best of Project Blue Book, which looks at the files, and there's some interesting stuff that I've been able to find from that. You have been listening to A Different Perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network, and I'll be back with it in about 167 hours, so thank you for tuning in.